Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. That's right. Bringing you more Verhoeven in this Verhoeven summer. Right, we're kicking off the blockbuster section of our Verhoeven summer. Uh, Basic Instinct's kind of a blockbuster. Yeah, but not by design. No. By happenstance. Yes. That's right. We are here to talk about Robobussy. <laughs> Do you mean Robocop? Mm, sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the other one. Not the one that I'm making. Oh, well, yes. yes. <laughs> Verhoeven's Robocop. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Robocop, I guess we'll get into it. It's a 1987 American science fiction action thriller satire film. (laughs) Directed by Paul Verhoeven and written by Edward Neumeyer and Michael Miner. The film stars Peter Weller, Nancy Allen, Kurt Wood Smith, and Miguel Ferrer. The story takes place in a near-future crime-ridden Detroit and focuses on a police officer who was murdered and then revived as a cyborg who executes a brutal campaign against crime whilst coming to terms with the lingering fragments of his humanity. Mm. Neumeyer conceived the idea while working on Blade Runner in 1982 and developed the screenplay more fully with Minor. It was filmed primarily in Dallas, Texas. I don't know why I got so excited about that. That's where we are. That's where we are. Oh, my God. With Rob Bottin leading the effects team in producing practical effects, violent gore, and RoboCop costume. Oh, my God. Is it Bottin? I've been saying Bottin this whole time. Rob Bottin. Yeah, it's Bottin. Damn it. <clears throat> All of which are still praised. It also features stop motion effects from Phil Tippett. Since its release, the film has been analyzed for its themes like the nature of humanity, personal identity, corporate greed and corruption, and is seen as a rebuke of Reagan era politics. Here, here. Hey guys, editor Chris here. I just wanted to inform you that we're having some technical difficulties, and so we can't get static out of some of the voice sounds. We're working on the problem. Some of this episode we had to re-record several times, but haven't quite hammered it out yet, so bear with us. All right, back to the episode. Okay, listeners, dead or alive, you're coming with us. This is Robocop. Bitches, leave. (laughs) (laughs) I'll buy that for a dollar. (laughs) We get the best of both worlds. The fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you... Robocop. This guy is really good. He's not a guy, he's a machine. Old Detroit has a cancer. Cancer is crime. Let the woman go. You are under arrest. You you better back up, pal. Your move, creep. What are your prime directives? You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. Anything you say may be used against you. He's a cyborg, you idiot. You recorded every word you said. You're dead. We killed you. His memory's admissible as evidence. You're gonna have to kill it. Get in the car, for God's sake! Robocop, the future of law enforcement.
In a near-future dystopia, Detroit is on the brink of societal and financial collapse. Overwhelmed by crime and dwindling resources, the city grants the megacorporation Omni Consumer Products, known as OCP. You down with OCP? You know me. <laughs> Control over the Detroit Police Department. OCP Senior President Dick Jones, played by Ronnie Cox, demonstrates... <laughs> <laughs> I wrote the synopsis and I still didn't catch that until just now. I didn't even catch it until you laughed. <clears throat> OCP senior president Dick Jones, played by played by Ronnie Cox, demonstrates ED209, a gigantic law enforcement droid designed to replace the police. ED-209 malfunctions at the board meeting and brutally kills one of the executives, allowing ambitious junior executive Bob Morton, played by Miguel Ferrer, to introduce the chairman to his own project, RoboCop. Meanwhile, Officer Alex Murphy, played by Peter Weller, is transferred to the Metro West Precinct. Murphy and his new partner, Ann Lewis, played by Nancy Allen, pursue notorious criminal Clarence Boddicker, played by Kurtwood Smith, and his gang, Emil. Leon, Joe, and Steve. The gang ambushes and tortures Murphy, doing things like shooting off his stinky pinkies with shotguns until Boddicker finally shoots him in the head. After his partner Anne finds his body amidst all the chunky salsa, Bob Morton has Murphy's corpse secretly converted into Robocop, a powerful and heavily armored cyborg with no memory of his former life. Robocop is programmed with three prime directives. Serve the public trust, protect the innocent, and uphold the law. A fourth prime directive, Directive 4, <laughs> is classified. <laughs> Robocop is assigned to Metro West and hailed by the media for his brutally efficient campaign against crime. Anne suspects he is Murphy, recognizing the unique way he holsters his gun, a trick Murphy learned to impress his son. During maintenance, Robocop experiences a nightmare of Murphy's death. He leaves the station and encounters Anne, who addresses him as Murphy. While on patrol, Robocop arrests Emil, who recognizes Murphy's mannerisms, furthering Robocop's total recall of his previous life. <laughs> Robocop then uses the police database to identify Emil's associates and review Murphy's police record. Robocop recalls further memories while exploring Murphy's former home, his wife and son having moved away following his tragic death. Elsewhere, Dick Jones gets Clarence Boddicker to murder Bob Morton in revenge for Bob's attempting to usurp his position at OCP. Robocop tracks down the Boddicker gang, and a shootout occurs. He brutally assaults Boddicker, who confesses to working for Dick. Don't we all? <laughs> Robocop attempts to kill Boddicker outright until his programming directs him to uphold the law. Based on the confession, Robocop attempts to arrest Dick at OCP Tower, but Directive 4 is activated, a fail-safe measure to neutralize Robocop if he were to ever act against an OCP executive. Dick admits his culpability in Morton's death and releases ED-209 to destroy Robocop. Although he escapes, Robocop is assaulted by the police force on OCP's order and is badly damaged. Recognizing the need to get away from Dick... <laughs> Don't we all? Anne helps Robocop escape to an abandoned steel mill to repair himself. Angered by OCP's underfunding and short staffing, the police force goes on strike, and Detroit descends into chaos as riots break out throughout the city. Dick frees Boddicker and his remaining gang, arming them with high-powered military weaponry to destroy Robocop once and for all. 
At the steel mill, Boddicker's men are quickly eliminated, but Anne is badly injured and Robocop becomes trapped under the steel girders. Even so, he kills Boddicker by stabbing him in the throat with his giant phallic data spike. <laughs> Afterwards, Robocop confronts Dick at OCP Tower during a board meeting, revealing the truth behind Bob Morton's murder. In order to escape, Dick takes the chairman hostage, but is promptly fired from OCP nullifying Directive 4 and allowing Robocop to shoot him. The chairman compliments Robocop's shooting and asks his name. Robocop replies, Murphy. The end. Mm. Dead or alive, it's the end. <laughs> Synopsis, leave! <laughs> <laughs> Robocop was released on July 17th, 1987, on almost 1,600 screens. It earned roughly 8 million opening weekends, securing the number one spot at the box office, ahead of re-released Snow White and Jaws The Revenge. It would retain the number one spot the following week and stay in the top ten for six more. Industry experts were incredibly optimistic about the box office for the summer of 1987, and rightfully so. The season brought around the opening of lots of genre films, which were usually profitable, if not respected by the industry. The studio had a lot of confidence in Robocop, and it performed as such. Ultimately, we grossed $53.4 million against a reported budget of 13. So Robocop has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh, while the audience score sits at 84%. The site's consensus reads, While over-the-top and gory, Robocop is also a surprisingly smart sci-fi flick that uses ultraviolence to disguise its satire of American culture. Audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the film an average grade of A-. Mm, that's impressive. Critics noticed influences in the film from the action of The Terminator, 1984, and Aliens, 1986, and the narratives of Frankenstein, 1931, and Repo Man of 1984, which is another amazing 80s sci-fi movie, and the television series Miami Vice. Robocop built a distinct futuristic vision for Detroit, wrote two reviewers, as Blade Runner had done for Los Angeles. Multiple critics struggled to identify the film's genre, writing that it combined social satire and philosophy with elements of action, science fiction, thrillers, western, slapstick comedy, romance, snuff films, superhero comics, and camp, without being derivative. That's a lot of genre. It is. Mm Mm-hmm. Could that be why we're covering it? I think maybe. Hmm. (laughs) Roger Ebert praised Weller's performance and his ability to elicit sympathy and convey chivalry and vulnerability, while mostly under a clunky suit. He wrote, quote, Most thriller and special effects movies come right off the assembly line. Robocop is a thriller with a difference. Variety called it, As tightly worked as a film can be, not a moment or line is wasted. They also highlighted Nancy Allen's performance and the only true warmth in the film. It has some accolades and legacy. At the Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Sound and Best Film Editing. But it won a Special Achievement Award for Sound Effects Editing. Which is now just a regular award. Yeah. Yeah. At the BAFTAs, it was nominated for Best Makeup and Best Special Effects. Winning nothing. And at the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Costumes. But it won Best Sci-Fi Film, Best Director, Best Writing, Best Makeup, Best Special Effects. And here, here. Yes. Really? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Robocop is considered a groundbreaking entry into the sci-fi genre and has been referenced throughout pop culture since its release, obviously. Robocop has been named one of the best science fiction and action films of all time, in fact, and among the best films of the 1980s. 
Filmmakers have spoken of their appreciation for RoboCop or cited it as an inspiration in their own careers, including Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck, Neil Blomkamp, Lee Wanell, as well as Ken Russell, who called it the best science fiction film since Fritz Lang's Metropolis. During the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic, it was among the action films director James Gunn recommended people watch. And of course, he's the director of, of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Lee Wanell, of course, is behind like the Saw franchise, of course, with his friend, but also a very RoboCop-like film in a way with Upgrade. That's right. Mm-hmm. Sequels RoboCop 2 and RoboCop 3 were released in 1990 and 1993, respectively. Several TV series, including an animated one, were released throughout the 80s and early 90s. I remember watching one in the 90s, and I was uh, super into it. I don't remember any of these TV series. There was a live-action one that was pretty good from my memory, but that's a kid's memory. and I, I remember really wanting an action figure. I kind of remember the cartoon a little bit, maybe but I don't know. A 2014 reboot of the 1987 original, also called RoboCop, was directed by Jose Padilla and features Joel Kinnaman in the title role. The film received mixed reviews, but was a financial success. Verhoeven said that he should be dead before a reboot was attempted, and Nancy Allen believed an iconic film should not be remade. RoboCop Returns, a direct sequel to RoboCop that ignores the series' other films, is in development. The film is set to be directed by Abe Forsyth, who is rewriting a script written by Newmeyer, Miner, and Justin Rhodes. In 2020, Ed Newmeyer revealed to Movie Hole <laughs> that a RoboCop prequel TV series is in development, which will focus on a young Dick Jones and the rise of the omni-consumer product. How can you make a RoboCop prequel without RoboCop, though? I mean, it can't be called RoboCop. And Dick Jones was trying to make the big the big robot, ED-209 yeah. or whatever the hell it was. You have 15 seconds to not make that TV series. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was watching this movie, I, I really started thinking about other kind of clones that came out or things that may not have been trying to be a clone but ended up being a clone. Okay. I instantly thought of Darkman. Okay. You know, accident happens to this guy. It's a tragedy. He has a girlfriend or a family. And then at the end, they end up in a fucking steel mill or whatever. The end of Terminator 2, we talk about a steel mill at the end, you know. And then uh, The Crow, right? Yeah. Which is basically the same thing as the dark, as dark Man as well as Robocop. It's that same kind of story where something is happening. Uh, and we'll get to this later with masculinity uh, and power that is placed upon them to make them be able to solve their problems without prejudice. And you can see that in all three of these movies, especially The Crow, I think. Yeah, for sure. I mm-hmm. can totally see that. Uh, do you know they were making The Crow, too? Oh, they've, I'm sure they've made like 50 sequels. Yeah. I mean, with the Scars Guard. Oh, mm-hmm. it was uh, going to be Cal Drogo or whatever the hell his name was, Aquaman. Uh, I think that would have been a better choice. This is the Pennywise Scars Guard. I think that's fine. I think yeah. that's better because I feel like the crow shouldn't be like this big hulking like Conan guy, you know? I think everyone should be a big hulking Conan guy, but whatever. That's fine. I'll still watch it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so do you want to talk about the background a little bit? Because this is uh, kind of um, thick with two C's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like this movie itself has a lot going on in it. We've already talked about, you know, that it's kind of a satire, which I'm sure that we'll get into, but there has to be a lot in the history of this movie. I would imagine. I haven't seen a lot of Verhoeven's early work, but I feel like maybe and I, I, I'm the layman as far as his earlier work than this really, but it feels like the kickoff of something new for him, especially like American satire. Mm-hmm. Cause the only American film that he had done before this, as far as I know, was that flesh and blood. Yeah, which I haven't seen. Which I haven't seen either. Um, You know, so I'm I'm wondering if this kind of kicked off his satire phase, even though this was not written 
by or for him and no story credit goes to him. And he wasn't even the first director attached. No, I kind of feel like maybe he had something to say as a director. And I mean, I don't know how this screenplay got to him, really. I'm sure that you might be able to tell me something Mm -hmm. about that. But yeah, I think you're right. I feel like this kind of did kick off like a whole series of message movies that he created, right? And continues to do. Yeah. So RoboCop was actually conceived in the early 1980s. So not any further and not in comics by Universal Pictures junior story executive and aspiring screenwriter Edward Neumeyer. So he was a fan of robot themed science fiction films like Star Wars, as well as action films. And he had developed an interest in mature comic books while researching them for a potential adaption. Okay. So in 1982, you know, the science fiction film Blade Runner was being filmed with Ridley Scott on the Warner Brothers lot and behind Neumeier's office. And so he unofficially joined the, he like kind of Spielberged himself into that <laughs> and to join the production to learn about filmmaking. And so his work there gave him the, the idea for Robocop. And he said, quote, I have this vision of a far distant Blade Runner type world where there was an all mechanical cop coming to a sense of real human intelligence. He spent the next few nights writing a 40 page outline for the film. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So he was inspired by comic books and obviously other films like star Wars and in his personal experience with uh, corporate culture uh, as an executive and presumably before Neumeier wanted to satirize 1980s business culture, noting that the increasing aggression of American financial services in response to the growing Japanese influences and that a popular book on wall street was the book of five rings, which is the 17th century text discussing how to kill more effectively. Oh Jesus. Seriously. For real. No, like this was like the peak 80s. We'd had like the the savings and loan crisis by this point, I believe. The Reaganomics was kicking off. Like um, this this greed before empathy thing was huge in culture. And greed is good. Yeah, greed is good, right? And we're getting to that too. The 80s is really well known for that corporate culture toxicity that spawned a lot. Like a lot of uh, counterculture or cultural commentary like 9 to 5, Working Girl, Wall Street, The Wolf of Wall Street more recently. And it even spawned a theme of corporatism and children's programming like Captain Planet comes to mind. He's our hero. He's our hero. Yes, he is. (laughs) Heart. (laughs) The one that doesn't belong. (laughs) Well, no, I can totally see that. There's there's so so much of this movie is like it's all about like 80s corporate greed in that culture. So yeah, I it spawned so much shit. And Wall Street specifically was super, super popular. One best picture, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. an excellent film. Well, a lot of the times, and you know, Wolf of Wall Street is kind of like that. It's almost satire, but it's almost too real, you know, to be true or too too much. Yeah. And, you know, like, I believe pretty much everything in that movie actually happened, you know, and of course, Wall Street was based off of templates, Mm -hmm. you know, and so Minor, his partner actually described the film as comic relief for a cynical time during the presidency of Ronald Reagan, when economist Milton Friedman and the Chicago boys ransacked the world enabled by Reagan and the Central Intelligence Agency. (laughs) So when you have this cop who works for a corporation that insists I own you and he still does the right thing. That's the core of the film, unquote. So the in-film media breaks were Newmeyer and Miner's idea. 
It's one of my favorite parts of this movie, right? Is like the fucking new segments. Yeah, I love that um, Nukem one. The Nukem game? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a commercial versus the new right. segments because it's both. And I think this was really just to drive home like the the level of like corporatism and greed and then the like infiltration into like even the nuclear family culture of America, fabric of America, essentially, with, you know, all this, you know, bombing and nuke and nukes and space lasers and everything being okay. <laughs> and kind of people in human life, the value of human life being kind of devalued and essentially just like the police department being owned by the corporation, expendable. I mean, these are the parts of the movie that really drive home the satire in RoboCop, for sure, right? Yeah. When they're talking about that fucking space laser and, like, two ex-presidents being killed by it in California or whatever. I mean, and then, like, they say it with a fucking smile. You know what I mean? It's it's complete 80s. That's the time in America where the 24-hour news cycle was just getting started, right? Like, CNN was happening right around this time. And, I mean, that's just what American life was like, right? Bad news with a fucking smile. Sure. So the first draft of the script titled RoboCop, the future of law enforcement. Stupid. Was was given to industry friends and associates in early 1985. That was still like the marketing tagline, by the way. The future of law enforcement? Yeah, it's in the trailer. (laughs) Yeah, even though it's not technically like the printed Uh movie subtitle, it's they used it as a tagline. So a month later, the pair had a couple of offers, including one from director Jonathan Kaplan and producer John Davison with Orion Pictures, an experienced producer of exploitation and B films, such as the parody film Airplane, Yay. From 1980. Davison said he was drawn to the script's satire. He showed Newmeyer and Minor several films, including Dirty Harry and uh, Mad Max 2, to demonstrate the tone he wanted, that kind of tongue-in-cheek violence. I can super see those movies as an influence for this, right? Yeah. I mean, Mad Max 2, which is one of the, like, few examples where the sequel is so much better than the original. Well, Mad Max Fury Road. Yes. I mean, even. (laughs) And Dirty Harry is kind of tongue-in-cheek itself, right? And really displays this like super masculine law enforcement type thing, right? Mm -hmm. Which you can kind of see in RoboCop. Yeah. So after Kaplan left to direct Project X, it took six months to find Verhoeven after directors like David Cronenberg passed Mm. due to the title. It's so funny that you would say that because when I was watching this movie, at least on this rewatch, I kept thinking about what this movie would look like if Cronenberg had directed it, right? Yeah, I mean, I there are some really good body horror moments in this, and I feel like he would have like pushed the boundary just a little bit further. Moments like when you know RoboCop has to take his helmet off to do repairs and things like that. I mean, it seemed like a very Cronenberg type moment. This is a very Cronenberg type movie. Yeah, and certainly, I, I think like the guy at the end, Emil, getting like. <laughs> toxic oh. <laughs> toxic Avengered and then like crushed against or splatted against I guess that car it really reminds me of like Grundlefly moments yes I mean this has Cronenberg all over it I feel like I would like to see like what he would have done with it although I'm super happy with Verhoeven's finished version oh yeah definitely so even then at first Verhoeven rejected the script based on the first page and he described it as awful. <laughs> he finally came on board based on his work uh, on the film like Soldier of Orange and Flesh and Blood both of which neither of us have seen. No. Nope. And Davison's contacts with puppeteers, animators, practical effects designers were essential to him because he had no prior experience with them. I mean he had done that like period action presumably, you know, special effects, you know, inclusion in um uh, either of those films, but especially Flesh and Blood, mm-hmm. I would assume, with like blood effects and violence effects. But to this, you know, extent, Verhoeven had never. And I think this is kind of the beginning of his, you know, special effects laden, you know, 
uh, film series. There's no way in the world that you could possibly tell by watching Robocop that he had never made a movie with this many special effects in it. Like it's seamless. almost. Well, he had a dream team, which we'll of course get into a little bit later. That's true. So just like basic instinct for Hoven asked the writers for rewrites. And after working through injuries and late nights, a new 92 page revision was sent to Verhoeven, including a romantic subplot somehow between Murphy and Anne. Oh God. I roll. Yeah. So he promptly rejected it and went back to the original script, admitting he was wrong. Just, (laughs) just like in basic instinct. He needs to learn. I mean, I don't, he probably, I wonder if he still does this today. He'll get a script and he's like, yes, I'm going to do it. And then he's like, no, add a romantic subplot and then go back. (laughs) Learn from your mistakes, Verhoeven. So let's talk about the casting a little bit because yeah, at this stage they're trying to put the movie together and around six to eight months were spent searching for an actor to portray Alex Murphy slash Robocop. So that included Arnold Schwarzenegger, Michael Ironside, Rudger Hauer, Tom Berenger, Armand Asante, (laughs) Keith Carradine, and James Remar. I don't care for that list at all. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. Right. I mean, especially to me, Schwarzenegger, I, there's no way in the world that he can pull off the kind of emotional response that's needed for, especially back then, I think. Cause, but you know, even then Orion favored Schwarzenegger who had obviously starred in their most recent success, the Terminator from 1984, but he and other actors were considered too physically imposing to be believable in the Robocop costume and was thought that he'd look like the Michelin man or the Pillsbury Doughboy. (laughs) Cause he would, he would look like fucking biscuit dough pop. Popping out of a fucking can. <laughs> like Peter Weller is like real thin and he looks huge in that that costume. Can you imagine? Oh, I guess we don't have to imagine. We've yeah. seen it. Mr. Yeah. Freeze. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. His best role. Oh god. I mean, even Peter Weller did look big in that costume, right? I mean, RoboCop has got quite the ass. The other actors that were up for it were reluctant because their face would be largely concealed by the helmet the entire movie. And uh, Davison said that Peter Weller was like the only person who actually wanted to be on the film that they, (laughs) you know, went to. And he also commanded a a really low salary compared to the others, which uh, was great. And he had, you know, good bot, well, at least for the company, you know, in his favor. And he had good body control from doing martial arts training and marathon running for years. And his his fan base uh, was also a thing from science fiction following his performance in something called the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension from 1984, I which this movie. I believe, yeah, I believe you've seen. I mean, yeah, it was like one of those USA up all night kind of things when I was a teenager. I just happened to watch it. It's super, super fun. Like, yeah. seriously, you need to watch this one. And uh, finally, Verhoeven said he hired him because, quote, his chin was very good. I mean, that should be the number one drawing power for an actor in this movie. Really? You have to have a good chin. That's all that's going to be seen. Yeah. So moving on, uh, Stephanie Zumbalist was cast as Murphy's partner, Ann Lewis, but dropped out because of her contractual obligations to Remington Steel. It's a fucking name I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah. Which had been canceled in 1986, but was revived because of its popularity. It's a super popular show. I think my my aunt named her cat after Stephanie Zimbalist because she was such a fan of Remington Steel. (laughs) Her replacement, Nancy Allen, thought the film's title was terrible, but found the script engrossing. So she actually read it. Nancy Allen is the best. I mean, we've already talked about her in our Carrie episode. I think we've mentioned her in a hot takes when we were talking about Dress to Kill, which I assume we'll deep dive into at some point on the podcast. But she's one of my favorite like horror actresses. And I I think she's just a good actress. Actress in general, right? Oh, yeah. I listen to a lot of interviews with her on podcasts and things. She's well-spoken and... um and she's just she's good. You know? And I didn't expect that after seeing Carrie. It was kind of a bit part, you know? And I was thinking, you know, uh, I, I don't think it was until Dressed to Kill that I really saw her chops. 
Yeah, I and mean, she's in a lot of uh, that director's work, right? I mean, they were married, obviously. And yeah. I mean, so she's in a lot of his films and she's really, really good in almost all of and them. And she was dating Spielberg for a while, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, she made the rounds for sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it, it's kind of interesting and, and kind of a different role for her because you, she's, she's usually like kind of sexy, and, yeah. you know, certainly, or even a sexualized role in some way. Uh, and she was known for her long blonde hair, but Verhoeven wanted to cut it short. So the character was not sexualized very intentionally. And he encouraged her to act masculine and gain more weight. And she accomplished the latter by quitting smoking. And that's why I haven't done it yet. <laughs> But no, I mean, she she is very unsexualized in this particular movie. And I feel like in every other thing, Carrie included, she's very, very sexualized. Right. Yeah. She, oh, yeah. she plays that kind of character that much like Catherine Trammell uses her body to get what she needs or wants. Uh-huh. Right. And she has a very definite plan in all these roles. Right. And it's, it's neat to see her in this movie because she's the complete opposite of what she normally is. Yeah. Right. I think I mean, she. She's almost genderless a little, right? Well, there's there's definitely a theme there because you see in this movie and in Starship Troopers where you've like got these like locker room scenes mm-hmm. where the men and women are together and kind of dumped into the same bucket, you know, so it's I feel like it's very gender neutral. And at first glance, you'd think that's a positive thing until you realize it's just because they're all you know, meat sacks that are equally expendable. That's true. I mean, that's true for both movies. You're right. I mean, especially the police force and RoboCop. I mean, that's their big beef, right? Is that they're out there protecting the the public at large and no one seems to care whether they live or die. It'd be some sort of decadent luxury in this kind of fascist, you know, system in RoboCop and then a, literally a fascist government and Starship Troopers to have any distinction between the two. Verhoeven does stand a communal locker room, though, doesn't he? I mean, like people changing and no one seems to notice each other. You know what I mean? Like titties and dicks everywhere and people are just (laughs) like having a conversation. So Kurtwood Smith, who played Clarence Boddicker, who's iconic in this movie. Yes. Auditioned for both Boddicker and Dick Jones. Uh, he was mainly known for television work even back then and, and hadn't really experienced film success, you know, and, and he saw Robocop as a B film with potential, you know, and so he didn't really expect this to, to have a success. And his character was scripted to wear glasses so that he would look kind of like the Nazi party member uh, Heinrich Himmler. Ooh. But he wasn't aware of that and interpreted it as uh, the character portraying an intelligent and militaristic front to conceal being a, quote, sneering, smirking drug kingpin. Just just like Heinrich. Which Hitler. is smart. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and so he still interpreted it correctly and michael ironside was offered the role but you know didn't want to be involved with another special effects laden film or portray a quote-unquote psychopath character after working on extreme prejudice from 1987 well and he was also a fucking psychopath in an extremely special effects written movie in scanners right and so i mean i i can see michael ironside playing this particular role not robocop but i think that he would have been excellent as Boddicker, although I would never in my wildest dreams trade out Kurtwood Smith. Oh, no, uh, not ever. And I could see him in the role, but Kurtwood Smith just sells every line he he gives. So good. It's gold. And you know what? I, I think he would see uh, Verhoeven for who he was and see Robocop for what it was and later team up for Starship Troopers in which he was given a very big role, an mm-hmm. important role, not a psycho. Nope, not a second. You know, but it was definitely a special effects laden film. Mm-hmm. You know, so he turned around. Also, Robert Picardo auditioned for this role. Oh my God, the doctor, the doctor from Voyager, <laughs> and uh, Meg, the the swamp witch from Legend. 
I mean, he's everywhere. And the right? cowboy from Inner Space. He can do anything. I could see him as anything. He's a he's a really good character actor, and I can totally see him doing this too. I mean, he's, he's yeah. kind of swarmy sometimes. He's super good in Gremlins too. So. Yeah. So let's get into the production. They've got their cast. First up, they got Yost Vacano, who served as their cinematographer, who also worked for Verhoeven on Soldier of Orange, and that he also had worked on like Das Boot and The Neverending Story. It's a lot of German productions. Mm-hmm. And uh, later he would go on to do Total Recall, Showgirls, Starship Troopers, and Hollow Man. So he didn't work with um, who's the other cinematographer that he had worked on for like Basic Instinct? Yandabont. Yeah, and I think that's partially because Yandabont's getting more and more into directing. Like he went on to do like Twister and things yes. like that. I mean, know? by the time that uh basic instinct came out yandabon had already had a very stellar career as a cinematographer and he was really starting to direct and he became a very very successful director in the 90s i feel yeah i mean twister and speed made a shit ton of money and they're both visually very good movies right yes script problems but hey that's fine yeah but uh you know, I, I, one thing that I, I want to say is like I, th- I feel like the cinematography is a lot about lighting and atmosphere and and sometimes angles and things like that. But I feel like a lot of that has been diagrammed into re- directing. And I see kind of a common theme, you know, with Verhoeven, you know, and that is his moving camera, you know, and he is not afraid to move the camera, not just like zoom in, but actually move the camera zooming in on mm-hmm. people, you know. And so I love that in Basic Instinct to add emphasis for like one liners and things like that. And there's a lot of kind of like documentary style filming and pieces of this that are like transition smoothly back into more traditional film, you know, uh, shot reverse shot and, and you know, still in you know, a static camera and things like that. But he's not afraid of mixing those styles and they, they work so seamlessly together. And I can't help but think a lot of that is Verhoeven. Yeah, he really feels like the kind of director who has control of his camera, right? I yeah. feel like he will probably pick cinematographers to work with because they would be a little bit easier to allow him to have his vision, you yeah. know, filmed, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe Jan de Bont didn't fulfill some of those needs, right? I mean, I, obviously, I think that was movie was nominated for cinematography at the Oscars, right? So, I mean, like, Basic Instinct is a well-shot movie. And similar to other Verhoeven films, but I feel like with this particular cinematographer, it's easier to see the commonalities. Yeah. So, uh, filming took place right here in Dallas. Shout out to the hometown. Right. With additional shooting and sets in uh, Las Colinas, or as we call it, the Hellmouth, <laughs> For real. And in uh, Pittsburgh for the internal steel mill scenes. And I think like the, the scene where he was killed, Murphy was killed, mm-hmm. was actually done last in LA oh. for an internal set. Yeah, because I was trying to think about where in Dallas I could possibly be. But, I mean, there are so many scenes in this movie, and I don't know why I never realized this before, Yeah, that is just Dallas all over the place, like Reunion Towers in the background, oh, right? Yeah. So The boardroom scene was shot in Renaissance Tower, which is like, I, I think now it's like the second tallest tower, but that's where Blockbuster used to be. So you've been in that building many times. Oh, many, many times. And I actually interviewed as like an SEO manager of all things at like the top of that building. I probably walked right past that fucking room and didn't even realize it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The awesome elevator shots were done inside the Plaza of the Americas in downtown Dallas. And the blowing up of storefronts during the riot scenes were shot in Deep Ellum. So all in Dallas. I mean, we should really go on like a RoboCop tour one day, right? Yeah. Like pack a picnic. I think we should. We could sit on the grassy knoll in Dealey Plaza and have a picnic. (laughs) (laughs) So RoboCop's costume wasn't finished until some time into filming, actually. And uh, while this didn't impact the filming schedule, it did deny Weller the months of costume rehearsal he had expected. And so he was immediately frustrated with the costume because it was like – 
really cumbersome for him to move around like he had practiced and he had spent hours trying to adapt he struggled uh to see through the thin helmet visor and um interact or grab objects while wearing the big rubber gloves and this caused a falling out with him and verhoven and he was actually eventually fired Hmm. with uh lance henriksen of all people considered as a replacement uh but because the costume was built for weller he was encouraged to to mend that relationship and so they did um so they had to to help weller develop a slower more deliberate movement style almost more robotic i would assume and um so his his experience in the costume after that was worsened by of course summer weather (laughs) In Dallas. Oh my God, we're experiencing it now. Yeah, Jesus. which caused him to sweat off up to three pounds a day. I mean, I'm doing it currently. Yeah. So he began taking prescription medication to cope with the stress induced insomnia, which left him filming scenes while intoxicated. <laughs> I mean, well, he's kind of a robot, though, so it's okay. Come with me. Yeah. I want a drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's bad enough, like being half naked in, you know, a pool or by poolside when it's 105 degrees. I can't imagine being in like a 30 pound suit. Oh, no, there's no way in the world I could possibly do that. I don't care if Botine himself came and fitted it to me. I I don't even know how they got shots of him without just sweat pouring down his face. You know? Yeah. And that on that chin. There's going to be so much powder on that face. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine how fucking sweaty your ass would be in that? I know. Jesus. So, you know, this partially due to this, Verhoeven actually often would choreograph scenes alongside the actors before filming. But even so improvisation was encouraged because he believed it could create interesting results. For instance, Kurtwood Smith improvised some of his character's quirks, such as like sticking the gum on the, the secretary's desk and spitting blood onto the police station counter. Great. <laughs> yeah. All, all great moments. He recounted saying, what if I splat blood on the desk? And then Verhoeven would give this little smile on his face and then they'd do it. Love it. Yeah. So the special effects team, was you know again this is kind of like a dream team coming together right right? so the special effects team was led by rob routine uh you know of the thing fame and and essentially everything else uh around this time and included phil tippett and uh steven uh dupois i guess and and bart mixon and craig davies among others um and i want to say the, the effects in this movie except for maybe one really 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 hold up I would agree, you know, and I kind of am interested to see which moment you think didn't hold up. I want to see if it's the same for me. Well, first off, I want to say like the the makeup special effects, like Murphy's violent death and like him stepping on the arm and shooting his hand off and all that's super visceral. It's fucking gnarly. Yeah. And uh, down to like Robocop's costume and makeup, like the scope of that costume was unprecedented nothing like it had really been done before and the both des- the design and construction exceeded the cost and schedule and it took six months to build it using uh foam latex and semi and completely rigid polyurethane as well as a fiberglass helmet and moving sections had to be jointed with aluminum and ball bearings because that is so heavy and to, to of course to look more cybernetic right right and so the entirety of the costume is supported by internal harness of hooks allowing for sustained movement during action heavy scenes and so seven costumes in total were made including like a fireproof version and costumes to convey sustained damage shouldn't they all be fireproof i would hope so but i don't you know but reports on their weight vary from like 25 to 80 pounds that's ridiculous yeah God, I mean, so this movie was not nominated for an Oscar for special effects, and I think that's ridiculous, right? I really need to go back and like look and see what won or was nominated that year. I know it was a big year for genre film. That costume holds up. 
It does. I mean, I think it, it's it's iconic. It's it's super great. I feel like it's filmable now, right? I haven't seen the remake, but I assume it's very similar, you yeah. know? Botin like really deserves a lot of praise for this particular movie. And I know that he'd already like made a name for himself in genre film and certainly in the thing in 1982. Yes, which I th- feel may have been nominated for i mean he had he'd won an oscar yeah so yeah i don't know i mean i he deserved a lot more praise than what he got yeah and and on top of that emile's makeup and belt explosion <laughs> which always makes me clutch my pearls and i'm not a pearl clutcher generally it's so gross when he comes out he's half man his fingers are like melting <laughs> off and everything and then like he like staggers out in front of the the cars and then like he just like splats his body goes one way and his head goes another and it just like liquefies. It's perfect. I always just makes me squirm back to the back of my couch. I mean, and it's supposed to. And right? It still looks so good. It does. I mean, the nasty. The effects in this movie really, really fucking hold up. Yeah, and uh, I do have to say, like the ED two hundred nine was Phil Tippett. A yeah. Mad God fam, obviously. And of course, his whole career from Star Wars to Jurassic Park and, and other things, you know, and so that less that's like less holding up. I mean, it seems like the frames don't, aren't 30 you know, or 24 frames per second. You know, like it doesn't quite match the film. And so you can tell. Yeah, they had a giant model on set, I'm sure, of the things for those wider shots, you know, where they can interact with it. But then for the the, the action shots, it was completely obviously stop motion and, and more of a model and that doesn't hold up as much but no, it still looks can, good it, do, it does look good i mean i don't i don't have beef with that really but i was watching this movie i bought it in 4k right and you can very definitely tell that it was filmed differently than the other practical effects were yeah right it's it's obvious it's composited very very well honestly but it's the the motion of it that gives it away yeah. and it's certain scenes i feel like boardroom scenes or anytime that it's indoors right it looks perfectly fine it's when you get to the stairwell well and it's trying to walk down the stairs oh my god i love that scene because it's like he gets on its back and it's like waving his legs and there's like a little kid uh, you know tantrum (laughs) (laughs) stairs my greatest enemy oh my god like why would you spend the money to build this giant fucking police robot and then not allow it to walk downstairs it's hilarious because because dick jones is supposed to be hilariously like villainously incompetent you know he's like this He's like the James Bond villain who will like leave the room and expect you to die. You know, that's true. Stroking a cat. Yeah. Stroking his 8209 versus Boddicker will do it himself. <laughs> he will shoot you in the legs and watch it happen. That's right. Yeah. Bitches leave. Bitches leave. So uh, the bad effect is to me, Dick Jones fatal fall after at the end yeah. where he's pushed out the window or whatever and you see him falling it's a stop motion puppet of Cox animated by Rocco Joffrey I don't know why they chose to do this with a puppet I mean I feel like Back to the Future is kind of around this time and they had falling scenes mm-hmm. and all they would do is, is like have them like lay on this tray and they'd like push them back or pull them back and the camera sees you falling and, there's, and the actors are just like waving their arms going oh you know and it's like such an in-camera thing that you can do with like blue screen and things like that and it just looked horrible it looked like was really muppety it, it really does look muppety i mean and we are in agreement i it's like the worst special effect in this particular movie yeah to me that's what brought it down like half a star for me <laughs> i mean and that's like it's the end of the movie too and you're, you've already seen this film that has such great effects like melting guys and shit and like stinky pinkies getting blown off <laughs> and then that's what you're gonna end it with i'm like god it seems so phoned in yeah 
So after seeing rough cuts and dailies, Orion increased the budget for the second time mm. to allow for the best possible musical score and post production, increasing the budget overall from eleven million to thirteen point seven million. They really did have some confidence in this, didn't they? Well, they I think they had pre-shot the ending. Like they came kind of sheepishly back to Orion and were like, "Hey, we didn't shoot Murphy's death scene because <laughs> it's kind of pivotal." Yeah. You know, and but they showed them kind of the test footage for it with all the arms being blown off. And Orion was like so impressed by it that they like gave him an extra budget to do that whole scene, you know, in in a real way. And so that whole thing was shot in, in L.A. And I mean, I assume since you're, you know, a fan of film scores that you also like this one a lot. Oh, my right? fucking God. Uh, so uh, Basil Polidorus provided the film score and he had worked on. Uh, Flesh and Blood with Verhoeven, which I absolutely have to see now. Uh, and it's winning on our Patreon poll. I think we're doing it. Yeah. And so he had also done Conan the Barbarian, which is an excellent score. And then he went on to do Starship Troopers with Verhoeven, which is an amazing score and one of my favorites. And I was listening to the score the other day, kind of isolated. And it's amazing. It's just really, really good and kind of melancholy and um, and beautiful. Uh, I remember, you know, Robocop kind of like walking through his house and there being like scales in, in the in the music and it's like super melancholy and like super like bittersweet um, but still in that theme so it's all just such wonderful wonderful music uh, if you go and, and listen to like the last track on the soundtrack uh, for the end credits and stuff it has all the themes in it it's about I don't know four to seven minutes long or something like that and it's just a really really good piece of music so whenever I listen to film scores and I want to sort of like listen to it in a vacuum right just to like not see the film just listen I usually do like opening or end credits right because yep. it tends to have a lot of it in there and you're right I feel like the score flows very easily between like militaristic and melancholy there's a lot going on in the score in this also i'm glad that you said that composer's name because i'm looking at the docket and i'm like every time you have a film <laughs> composer that you like i can't say their fucking name so i mean like michael giacchino <laughs> fucking vortex killer <laughs> you just said it because <laughs> i've been practicing but he also did a kind of an un- unseen thing so far as far as i know because like if you look at the terminator right it's all synthesizer yeah. Right. And so this is or- orchestra, but with synthesizers. And if you listen to portions of the soundtrack, it's like peak, like cyberpunk 80s with a beat and like the, synth- the, like the John Carpenter synthesizer going on with orchestral background mm-hmm. and accompaniment. And it's there's pieces of this that are just like excellent that just sound like 80s slasher or something, you know, as well as like the, the 80s cyberpunk, you know, and things like that. It's great. And I love that. I mean, you're definitely taking, a vibe t- taking the best parts of the eighties and like throwing it into your score, but also keeping it very, very like orchestral, like you said, and classic sounding. Yeah. So once they wrapped all of that up, they had to send the final cut to, of course, the MPAA as one does. And uh, they were rejected for an R rating by the MPAA eight times. Fuck the MPAA. Receiving a rating of X. So the violence was cut down slowly over uh, those rejections until the final cut was accepted. And one scene that wasn't cut, uh, that the MPA completely objected to, was the scene of uh, that mutated Emil being disintegrated by Boderick's car. But Verhoeven, Davison, and Orion refused to back down or remove it because it consistently received the biggest laughs during test screenings. It's one of the best moments in this movie. Yeah. I love it. Well, everyone's like clutching their pearls and then laughing at each other for clutching their pearls, you know? And it's just one of those shocking moments that people just like laugh at as a group. And so it's a good audience movie. Good movie for crowds, you know? I don't understand why they would want to cut that particular scene. The MPAA is silly, you know? And I mean... Well, they, also, they often make things worse. 
They do. I'm or I mean, like making some cuts make things a little better sometimes. You know what I mean? But or a, a little bit more visceral. More yeah. You know. But the '80s were like just a ridiculous, like censored time, right? Sure. So I, I can see them doing that. I don't think there's anything in this movie that I I would even deserve an R rating. Like mostly, I feel like this Ooh. could be a PG-13 movie. <laughs> I don't know about that. There's so much blood and guts in Chunky Salsa. There's a lot of blood and guts in PG-13 movies. Now, maybe. Now, not in the 80s. Maybe not to this extent. This is still a super violent movie. It is. Oh, you're right. It's hyper violent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in that first scene with him walking in, uh, the big ED-209 walking into the boardroom and shooting that executive, mm-hmm. like, that's a perfect example. Like, I, I, that's, again, like, basic instinct, starting the movie and just, like, clutching my pearls, being like, oh, shit. You know, this is way more violent than I remembered. Yeah, well, and you're right, because, I mean, we talked about that during that episode, too. Like, when I had not seen Basic Instinct in a long time, and I sat down and watched it, and I paused the movie, like, right after that opening scene. I was just like, fuck, Jesus Christ, I forgot this movie was violent. Yeah, but that's one example, too, because the the violence in this movie is supposed to be so surreal and over the top that it would serve kind of like those commercial breaks and uh, the news breaks and kind of serve the the heightened tone, surrealist tone of the movie to to really enforce the satire. Like the ED-209 was supposed to come in and basically shoot that that executive for like 30 seconds, like, and it was just all the boardroom people going, oh, that's unfortunate. You know what I mean? Like the expenditure of human life, right? you know, and um, the belittling of that. And so it was supposed to be kind of funny. And so those are the types of things that the MPA would cut off. And so when you do that, that's a hor- that's a principle in horror, right? Yes. The less you show, the scarier it is. Think of Alien or even Aliens. You know, they didn't show much more than like a minute, you know, in that whole movie of Alien, of that of that creature, mm-hmm. you know. But like the if they had shown a lot more of it, it wouldn't have been as scary. No, you're right. I mean, it's, it's what you don't see that's frightening always. I mean, that's why people are afraid of the dark. Yeah. Right? Well, and so the more cuts he made, the more, you know, this movie is already has an amazing economy right fast paced there's nothing extra in this thing everything is there super intentionally and serves the story and the tone um and it's already like that and then you're cutting all those violent bits even shorter and tighter and so it makes it even more surreal because your mind kind of fills in the blanks and so verhoven um you know believe the cuts made the scenes appear more and not less violent and i you know i think that tracks with like how horror works no, you're right. And I mean, obviously, we're going to discuss whether or not this is a horror movie later on in the episode, but there's a lot that you piece together for yourself in this movie. And I, I like that you could say like economy, right? Because this movie is never boring. Mm-hmm. It flows super well. Like it's just it's a good time from start to finish. And there could have very easily have been some really terrible moments to like drag the story down and either they were cut or cut from the script. Right. It just, it works. All of it works. Yeah. So now that we've got a released movie, I think we can start talking about the themes. Oh my God, they're legion. Yeah. And obviously we've talked a lot about corporate power already. Yeah. I mean, it's the eighties, right? And then I I feel like it didn't take very long for people to start to satirize that sort of thing. You know? Yeah. And, you know, I would say there's some ties to like Terminator 2 and the commentary about like masculinity and authority. Um, Vince Mancini described the 1980s as a period in which cinematic heroes were unambiguously good, as depicted in films that uh, promoted suburban living, materialism, and unambiguous villains like Raiders of the Lost Ark with the Nazis, Back to the Future, um, and some films of the decade 
you know, send messages that authority is good and to be trusted. But Robocop demonstrate that those in authority are flawed and that Detroit has been carved up by greed, capitalism and cheap foreign labor. Yeah. I mean, and there's there's a lot of that. I feel like I mean, because we're talking about essentially a corporation building a city and owning a city. Right. That's their plan is to like sort of like level Detroit and build their idea or at least that part is. yeah yeah old you detroit know. or whatever they called it yeah right. it'll be like them doing like deep ellum or something. <laughs> something like that you know um and creating their own city and uh opening it up purposefully for crime you know and, and things like that and uh owning uh, having a contract with the city by owning the police and all of this is expendable and it, it reminds me of um like alien again mm-hmm. you know where that crew is expendable for the purpose of finding military assets for the company, yep. right? And so in uh, in this is very much the same. You know, they don't care what happens to those police. And those police are in kind of that, you know, that system as well. But there's still good people within those systems. You know, the, the human element will always exist, even if you find yourself in the fascist government. Or like, people still exist in those systems at those times and places. And so you're always going to see, you know, people... Um, like Anne, you know, or the small portion of police that decided not to shoot on Robocop saying, hey, no, don't shoot. He's one of us. But the vast majority is still going along with their, you know, fascist company overlords. You know, I feel like that's the biggest or scariest theme in this movie is not just like the way that the police have been militarized. Right. But that they're privately funded by a company or organization. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we are that far off from something like this happening. Well, see, we've seen the militarization of police separate from any kind of corporatism in America. Yes. And that's what's kind of, you know, the the culture around uh, around police. And you, you would you would think that Verhoeven has something to say. He has something to say about these systems at scale. He has something to say about corporate corporations he has something to say about police certainly in this yes and the abuse of power potentially and all that but he's still saying at the individual level that's where good and bad have a lot of play right because you have people like Anne, you have people like murphy who's not perfect either he's trying to to take revenge when he is being held back by his his own programming for upholding the law Mm -hmm. you know and so you have like these individuals he's still having something very much to say about these systems Right. But that there still exists good people within them. And I think that's like uh, I think that's the silver lining for the satire. And I hope that's true in real life. I mean, because I mean, there's there's been discussions over the last several years about like defunding police from like a a government level. Right. And I I feel like deep down, if that were to happen, really, somebody like. OCP would step in, you know what I mean? Especially in smaller towns, you know, they could very easily use that as a way to control everything in that particular town, mm-hmm. target certain individuals, make sure that their goals are being met above the common interests. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just truly fucking frightening to me that this could possibly happen. And watching RoboCop is a good way to sort of like visualize that. And I think that we can learn a lot of lessons from this particular movie as far as that is concerned. Like, like we have to maintain our government in such a way to not let corporations 
come in and do that when they're already doing it now, like lobbying and things like that. Like it happens, but it could be a hell of a lot worse. Yeah. And they show that while the company and the system and the news and the culture doesn't care about these police deaths or basically any other death. It's a day of mourning in America. Moving on. You know, (laughs) Uh, you know, you see that at the beginning with uh, we don't know if it's Anne's previous partner. Oh, yeah. You know, or not. But um you know, they're the police are kind of waiting with bated breath to see if this guy's going to survive this, this uh, policeman that's in the hospital. And you know, and of course he dies. You know, and they have to kind of move on. So at least there's there's this key moment where you see that they still value life at the individual level, instead of the systemic level that they don't. And I'm glad because it really adds some like warmth to this and hope. Yeah. Right. So I I think that's it's it's great that he did that and make these to make these police officers individuals. I mean, we don't really get to know a lot of them, but mm-hmm. I feel like you can tell by their interactions with each other and with their superiors and with the company itself that they value their own lives and the lives of their like compatriots. It's another argument for Verhoeven's effectual or ineffectual satire, right? Because the human element is always kind of contradicting the situation, the corporatism, whatever they find themselves in to kind of rise above it. Humanity is the answer in Verhoeven's mind, in my opinion. I would agree with that. I don't know. I think there's a lot of really unlikable people in this movie, and all of them are sort of like at that corporate level. I mean, even some of the criminals, I think that we like more than those corporate people. Oh, sure. Certainly the cops. You know what I mean? And well, they're all in this, like they're all in these different parts of self-serving. Like the drug lord is no better than the guy at the top of the corporate, you know, the well, corporation together. Yeah. Yeah. They're not only are they working together, but they have two different, you know, ones on the street and ones in the sky, but they're both just as bad or no better than the other because they're so self-centered. So, I mean, ultimately, I feel like the police force in this movie was the most likable group of people. It's interesting. They actually test screened this first with cops. And of course, the cops loved it because, you know, he was able to do something that generally they don't have the power to do, which is like to kill a murderer on the spot. Yeah. Well, because you shouldn't do that. They want to be Judge Dredd, which is another kind of thing that come out of this. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into some of the fun stuff. Uh, Quotes. Basically everything Kurtwood Smith says, obviously, uh, bitches leave everything out of his mouth. I, I remember just laughing at the beginning because it's one of his own guys that he just like wants to use as a human weapon mm-hmm. to throw at the car that's chasing them, which is Murphy and, and Anne. In the cop car? Yeah. He's like, can you fly Bobby? <laughs> it's, like, it's the way I can't even do it. It's the way he says it. It's just perfect. Every, every delivery in this movie from him is, is gold. Uh, I especially like the bitches leave scene. There's a, a one of those women says something. They're talking about like thoughts or whatnot. She's like, sometimes I just think something, and I get so horny. God, you girls are so great. I mean, I just I, I love to be with intelligent women. Smart is so sexy. I know. Sometimes I could just think of something, and it could just get me. Ooh, horny. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Yes. Bitches leave. And I was just like <laughs> dying. I was just like, come on, lady. He's like, I like to be around smart women or whatever. <laughs> Sometimes I just think something it's so horny. And I was like, hard same. <laughs> Kurtwood had the right idea. Bitches leave. <laughs> Bitches leave. <laughs> 
And of course, that whole uh, sitcom. I'd buy that for. I buy that for a dollar. I. That's the stupidest thing. But funny. The more it goes on, you know what I mean. He's always looking at tits. It's and, funny how funny the people in the movie think it is. Yeah, I know because there's no context for us, but everyone really fucking loves that show. And I'm like, what is it even? Yeah. And then of course we got RoboCop's lines. You know, dead or alive, you're coming with me. And we got Ed's Ed two hundred nine. Uh, saying, like, you've got 20 seconds to comply. <laughs> you have 15 seconds to comply. <laughs> so all of this is iconic. You know, like, yeah. there's so many good quotes in this movie. It's not the most quotable movie, but the quotes are so good. Certain ones just really stand out and make it super fun, for sure. Yeah. So speaking of those moments, uh, I have a list of some of my favorite moments that I just, like, took down in notes while I was watching this movie. Okay. Yeah. So first was Murphy's death scene. We've already talked about this. I was just like, holy shit, this took me aback. Cause I had forgotten, you know? And then of course, every commercial and news break, like the Nukem game, which we've already discussed. The news segments were yeah. particularly enjoyable <laughs> because like a space laser that accidentally misfired, you know, and like <laughs> killed 129 people, including two ex presidents. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, is that when they're delivering this bad news, they're doing it in such a 1980s news style, like smiling the whole time. Yeah, it's like there's the nation in mourning. Anyway, from Coca Cola, you know, or something, like, <laughs> and like laughing with each other. Yeah, it's kind like, of Futurama, really. Yeah, it really is. It's fucking gold though it's hilarious yeah also i really love the vignettes of consciousness um when he's becoming robocop because it's all from his perspective the screen goes black it opens up there's progress time has passed you know and you get to see like the the party of him coming online and just like all of that and then right after that was his introduction which was shot more documentary style and you see glimpses of him or a picture of him in a monitor passing it, mm-hmm. you know, and then you see a silhouette, you know, and, and people kind of the camera kind of rushing behind the police as they run down the hallway just to get a look at him, you know, and all of that was just uh, like super fun to me. I thought it was just really, really well done. I really enjoyed the moments of consciousness, especially when they were doing like that New Year's Eve party and she like yeah. kisses him on the visor and stuff like that. Like it, it is really neat. And it's sort of like for us now, I mean, like everyone knows what Robocop looks like, right? He's ingrained yeah. in our like subconscious even, or at least in pop culture. And at the time, I, I, don't, I can't remember what the marketing was like, but if, if no one had seen like the Robocop suit or at least like maybe glimpses on TV or in print, like that's a really good way to introduce a character like that. They yeah. had to have shown a huge buildup, at least partially, at least his helmet or something. Something. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, no one would have gone to see the movie. Just for real. The next thing is like it's one of his first forays out into the wilderness, you know, to try and fight some crime is that rape dick shot where he shoots through the lady's dress <laughs> through, through the fucking middle of it. Yeah. <laughs> you think <laughs> you think he's going to shoot through her and like hit the guy, but she shoots through. He shoots through her skirt. does the math or whatever on the fly and shoots the guys you know and it's funny because there's like this uh, fan film that was done I've seen it where it's like 10 minutes long and just like different criminals just like running into frame and getting in like with their dicks out yep and getting their dicks shot off by Robocop it's like 10 minutes long of just that happening and it's just hilarious it makes me laugh yeah I just loved his quote there he's like madam you have suffered an emotional shock I will notify a rape crisis center I did laugh at that too she's just like looking up with him like what the fuck are you talking about and then uh, cashing out Bob, the whole bitches leave moment. Uh, I thought that was well done and also pretty nasty how he's just shooting his legs right there on camera. And it's not cutting away, you know? 
I was like, this guy just doesn't give a shit, man. He's just shooting this guy in the legs. Bitches leave. Also, the toxic waste with Emil. We've talked the shit out of this already, but because it's, it's so good, it's so really well done, and it's just like I, I have to like clutch my pearls every time. <laughs> I hope to God there's a gif of this when I when I post this on social media because I will use it <laughs> for real. <laughs> and I just want to say, like the entire end sequence is like super visceral violence. Just like every like it's so edited so well and so fast paced, and the moments are just like so like edge of your seat. Like it's just really, really done well. It's just great, like masterwork of editing for for violent action. Yeah, and it happens really quickly too. I mean, the yeah. end of this movie happens fast. Yeah, it's not like Dark Man where it's like the last like I don't know. It seems like the last forty five minutes of the fucking movie where they're just <laughs> on the top of that building at a standoff or something, and I'm just like, stop it. This is like everything just goes at a like really, really fast pace. This whole movie. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say the economy of this movie is kind of legendary. Yes. I mean, I they, they accomplish a lot really, really quickly, and I never get bored. I know that. Yeah. And then, of course, I've already mentioned the horrible falling effect of Dick. And, uh, and of course, the very end, What's Your Name, Murphy, is the kind of the, the end cap for the entire movie. And I also forgot how abruptly this movie ends, too. Yeah. He says Murphy, and then that's and it. And that's it. Yeah. You know? And it that, was perfect. That's all that you need. Like, get a life. <laughs> and exactly. From that Patreon episode we did. <laughs> get a life. From that Patreon episode. Sliver. <laughs> get a life. Oh, yeah. That Murphy. was a movie, too. Not just an episode on the film. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any fun facts for me? Yes, I do. Lay on me. All right. So Nancy Allen first arrived on set when Paul Verhoeven was shooting the deliberately cheesy sitcom. It's not my problem or I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> Can you imagine showing up while he's shooting that? <laughs> no, I'd be like, what the fuck movie am I in? Yeah. So uh, Allen was initially horrified to think that she had signed on to make a film with such an incompetent director. <laughs> she already didn't like the title. All right. So the repeated line, I'd buy that for a dollar, comes from Cyril Cornbluth's short story, The Marching Morons, which presents a similarly cynical view of an over-commercialized future that's desensitized to violence in war. A radio game show in that short story uses the line, I'd buy that for a quarter, as its signature phrase. Oh, so inflation happened by the time Ooh, well, yeah. it was made. <laughs> so, I don't know. What is it now? I'd buy that for a Franklin. Yeah, <laughs> I'd buy that for a grand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So because the hands of the Robocop suit were made from foam rubber, the car keys that were passed to him or actually thrown to him that he catches would bounce off Peter Weller's hand every time he attempted to catch them. So the production took up to 50 takes and an entire day's worth of filming before finally getting that shot right. Jesus Christ. Just for him to catch those keys. <laughs> There's another moment in this movie where he like slaps the gun out of someone's hand <laughs> and it just like lands in some other dancer's hand and he starts <laughs> dancing with it. Like, I love that moment. It's hilarious. <laughs> And it might actually be Verhoeven who catches it. I think it's one of his only cameo in any of his movies. Oh, shit. That's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. In the mayor hostage scene, as Robocop is walking toward the room where the former councilman is holding the mayor hostage, the infrared heat vision mode was actually executed using fluorescent body paint on the nude actors and a black light. So Paul Verhoeven says that he thought his technique would be cheaper than getting an actual infrared spectrometer camera. Was it, though? Is it better for those people? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if it was the same actors. Oh, I guess it's true. It could be anybody. Yeah. So, 
Uh, Kurtwood Smith's wife, Joan Perkle, has a small role as Dick Jones' secretary, Barbara, who he flirts with before a meeting. That was his wife. Oh, is that why it seems so natural for her to hate him like that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. She was not impressed. She was like, he's expecting you. No. <laughs> Perkle? Perkle. Okay. So, uh, one explosion in that Deep Elm riot scene was larger than anticipated, and actors can be seen moving out of the way, and Kurtwood Smith had to remove his coat because it was on fire, and the actors involving received an additional $400 stunt pay. <laughs> I'll buy that for $400. <laughs> I'll buy that coat for a dollar. They couldn't make sure he had a flame retardant coat on before he did that? I don't know. Jesus. They built a flame retardant Robocop suit for half a million dollars. But they couldn't protect Literally like a third of this budget was the Robocop suits. (laughs) Jesus. So Paul Verhoeven and Rob Bottin clashed repeatedly before and during production over the design and makeup of the Robocop character. What they argued most about was the scene where Murphy takes off his helmet. So Botin wanted the scene to be filmed in a darkened area, fearing that the harsh light would reveal too much of the makeup effects. And Verhoeven wanted the scene to be filmed as brightly as possible, citing that director of photography, Yost Vacano, would be able to light it properly without revealing anything. Verhoeven got his way. And Botin refused to talk to him any further for the remainder of production. This keeps happening to Verhoeven. Yeah. So well, there's a story behind that, too, actually. So he was working on these Dutch movies, you know, and in his own culture, in his own language, you know, his the way he worked was perfectly acceptable. Mm-hmm. But then for American crews and things like that, he had to quickly adjust. And so in this movie, he ended up essentially apologizing to each crew member one by one. Oh, Jesus. You know, and learned how to be an American director kind of moving forward. Okay. Right. Anyway, so at the premiere, both men were so impressed with how the scene actually turned out that they instantly forgave each other. And Botin, who had even vowed to never work with, with Verhoeven again, happily accepted the offer to work on Verhoeven's next project, Total Recall. And an excellent film and pairing that was. Mm-hmm. Some of his best work. So for my last one. Ray Wise said that he kept his costume from this film. He also keeps it wrapped in plastic and quote, just like Laura Palmer. Oh God. Because <laughs> of course he was on Twin Peaks. <laughs> just like just Laura, Laura Palmer. Palmer. <laughs> you know, I saw a t-shirt online today that had that like, graduation picture of laura palmer or whatever right and at the bottom it says who drinks arnold palmer's or something (laughs) it made me laugh so hard jesus off topic (laughs) well those were fun but we have some questions to ask about robocop like we do about every movie we cover here on the film flamers and we're going to start with who would win in a fight robocop or the terminator I feel like there's like a YouTube animation of this. Uh, it's like versus battles or something. And I forget who wins, but I think it's got to be RoboCop. I mean, I would say RoboCop too. I think his humanity has the edge on things. I'm not sure Terminator is smart enough to go straight for the mouth. No. The exposed skin. I'm not sure. Maybe. I was wondering that in this movie anyway, people keep shooting him around the chesticle area. Yeah. And I'm like, there's an exposed mouth. What are you doing? Yeah. So I, especially with the shotguns and stuff like that, you know, but he does kind of cover his mouth area when he's being shot in that scene by all the police. 
but otherwise they're they're trying to shoot for the biggest area right because he's actually generally pretty far away until he like comes up and like bends your you know rifle around or whatever with his strength but i feel like he's just as strong as terminator and his weapons are better i don't don't it's a pretty impressive gun Yeah. yeah i don't know i feel like having some basic humanity too i mean maybe terminator from terminator one you know he would Robocop would definitely win. I can't I cannot believe they didn't do this on Celebrity Deathmatch though at some point. It seems like a wasted opportunity. <laughs> not right? the uh yeah, definitely not the the metal, the liquid metal one. He wouldn't win that. No. Oh no no. <laughs> <clears throat> but seriously though, uh is Robocop a horror movie? No. But it is adjacent enough for us to cover because this is we already talked about how genre defying this is. There's comedy, there's satire, there's thriller, um, there's suspense. There's action, obviously. There's sci-fi. Um, it's just a lot of different elements just matched to be the fingerprint, the DNA of, of this movie, Robocop. That's very, very specific in particular. And so, you know, it definitely has horror elements in it. Definitely the gore. Definitely some of the action. Definitely some of the body horror. You know, and if there's body horror in a movie, you know, instantly it's got some DNA of horror in it. So I would say this is this is horror adjacent, but in and of itself is not a pure horror movie. But it's not a pure anything movie because it's so, you know, mixed genre. I would call it a horror movie flat out. Oh. I mean, I I think this is a horror movie. I think from from the very basic themes of it, which is completely horrific to the body horror of it all, uh, to the violence, to the gore. I feel like this is a, a horror movie. I have no problems putting it into that category. I but respect like you that. said, yeah. I have no problems putting it into any of those other categories as well. Yeah. It, but, I mean, if it's an action movie or a sci-fi movie, it might as well be a horror movie. Yes. Right? So if we're going to pick one, you could pick any of those genres equally. And I think it would fit into any of them. Yeah. But I, I feel like I feel like it's horror enough to call it a horror movie and not horror adjacent. I agree. So, okay. Uh, were you scared while watching it? Um, <laughs> I don't know if scared because it's like to me, scared is like the anticipation of horror, mm-hmm. you know, like terrified is a perfect example of that. Right. Versus this, it's like clutching my pearls when the action actually happens or getting taken aback and my mouth agape, you know, when, you know, fucking toxic Avenger gets splashed against a car, you know, (laughs) you know, our hands get blown off or arms get blown off or people are shot with like 300,000 bullets in the same moment. You know, there's all this body horror in this fucking movie. And, um, you know, it's maybe scared in the split second, you know, and that notice, you know, and then the reaction. I can't say that I'm scared watching it. I'm scared thinking about it. I'm scared thinking about the implications of what could happen in a future like that. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Thinking about the themes, thinking about like corporatism and the militarization and and owning people and and things like that. Yeah. That's scary. But while watching it, no, I mean, I feel like, I feel like all the scary moments sort of come after that. There's just lots of gross moments in this movie. Right. But, and that's the magic of genre. It makes it okay and easier to think about while you're watching these stories, mm -hmm. you know, then it would be like watching like Homeland or something like that. Like you're literally watching like yeah. something. It makes it digestible. Yeah. And you can tell stories that are very visceral without getting too much on the point or, or crossing any political lines, you know, and that's the battle of star Galactica comes to mind. True. You know, um, starship troopers, starship troopers, you know? And so we're able to tell these stories through horror and sci-fi and, and fantasy and things like that about good, evil and all the stuff that exists in between, which is most things. You know, and all of these different interesting situations, politically, you know, or otherwise. 
Agreed. So, out of five stars, what would you rate RebelCop? I give it a 4.5. This is shockingly good. It is. I also gave it four and a half stars. I have to say, I judge this book by its cover, and I've seen this movie like at least three times. And it's like, it's like RoboCop, you know, Mechanic Cop, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. You don't expect, you don't expect a good movie, you know, going into based on, you know, you, it feels like a product, right? And, but it's making fun of the product. That's true. And so when you watch this movie and you just realize how actually good it is and how much of a good point it's making and how much in on the joke you are, uh, you know, let yourself enjoy it. And yeah, like I said, it's, it's nearly perfect for me. It's like a 4.5. Yeah, agreed. Totally. I feel like I hadn't seen this movie in a very long time. It had been at least 15, 20 years. And I feel like I say that a lot on the podcast, but I feel like we pick movies intentionally that we haven't seen in a while to revisit sometimes. And like this movie is excellent and everything about it is so good. And the the messages here, I think, are timely. I think Mm -hmm. they were timely in 87. They're certainly timely in 2022. Oh, yeah. Sadly. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know what that says about corporations weren't even people back then. (laughs) I mean, but everything is fucking like cyclical. And, you know, I think that I think that people should go and watch movies like Robocop today and just, you know, know what's at stake for your future and the future of the place that you live in. And maybe think twice about making some of the choices that you fucking make in your real life. You know what I mean? And we're definitely going to be saying the same things next week with Starship Troopers we and are. the need for fascism to have an enemy. That is true. I mean, my good Lord, Verhoeven, thank you for making these fucking movies <laughs> right. to give us something to talk about in 2022. Love it. So, finally, who's the hottest guy in RoboCop? Oh my God, you're going to be repulsed by my answer. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. I'm like almost embarrassed because for some reason I thought that the actor playing Emil was the hottest guy in this movie. And that is an actor named Paul McCrane. And, um, he of course was that motorcycle toxic Avenger by the end, but he also played kind of like a a boss doctor, I think on ER Mm -hmm. later on. But um, to me, like something about like the Cro-Magnon forehead with like the dark eyes, <laughs> that kind of David Boreanaz look or something, uh-huh. even though he's kind of bald. Like I, th- I thought he was the hottest guy in the movie. I don't know why. I'm not repulsed by that because I mean, I, I, he's attractive to me. I don't know that he's the hottest. I had a hard time watching this movie. Who am I going to pick? To be the hottest guy, you know what I mean? Because no one really jumped out at me. Well, it's not Peter Weller. It's not Peter Weller. He's actually know. gotten hotter as he's aged. He has. He's, he's aged quite well. I, I don't know. I don't think for the first time in the film Flamer's history, I'm not sure that I have an answer from this movie. <sighs> like, no guy really stood out to me. I guess if I was going to pick someone, it would be the one with the nice house and the blow. So I guess Miguel Ferrer. I mean, mm. like... But even then, he's kind of squirrely and stupid. Yeah. Some of the other. Not even the the Twin Peaks guy? Ray Wise? Yeah. No. I mean, kind of like in a daddy sense, I guess. I don't know. Then it's got to be Emil. You got to come along with me. Okay. I'm going to, I will, I will also vote Emil. Okay. But when he's the toxic adventure. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. I like my guys. Haley Joel Osmond now. (laughs) (laughs) I like my guys a little more fluid. Stop. <laughs> you deserve a comedy cough for that. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think that just about wraps up our conversation on RoboCop. As always, we want to know what you think about this movie and our discussion about it. You can find us on social media at the Film Flamers, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. RoboCop a feel. Let me cop a feel. <laughs> Dead or alive, you're coming on me. What? <laughs> yeah. The implications of that are staggering. <laughs> okay. Wow. I'm shocked myself. As we've already talked about several times in this episode, we have some more Verhoeven coming out for you next week, and we are talking about Starship Troopers. That's right. And uh, I believe by now we can say the poll has been decided over on Patreon and we are going to see that movie, his first English movie or English language movie, I should say, Flesh and Blood. I mean, it better be good for Hoven. You have yeah. a lot to live up to. And I get to listen to another Basil Polidor score, which I'm so excited for. I mean, it could have been lesbian nuns. It could have been. But you know what? It can come back another day for like religious horror or something. That's true. Or like comedy month. Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) Pride month. Guys, if you love this episode or any of our past episodes, we need some reviews over on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. So please go over there. Leave us a five-star review and why you like us. We'll read that on Shooting the Flames. Well, bitches, I need to leave. (laughs) Not to let it go. (laughs) You're right, Chris. Okay, dead or alive, we're ending this episode with some sweet sweet dreams. dreams. I'd buy that for a dollar and some Xanax. (laughs) (laughs) Xanax leave. (laughs) Everything fits.